Hey there, this is Amanda from She Owns, and you're listening to the She Owns Podcast, the show that helps you own your past, your present, and your future for people who want to live their lives in a more intentional way. Today, we're talking about self-worth with Leela Sinha, founder of the Intensive Institute and author of You're Not Too Much, Intensive Lives in an Expansive World. Thank you so much for joining me. And... <laughs> I would just love to hear what your personal thoughts are to start off with on how to cultivate better um, thoughts about yourself and like enhance your self-worth. Oh, that's like, I feel like that's a dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I have so many thoughts on this partially because I'm also struggling with it. And for me, one of my biggest struggles is when I'm having more trouble getting clients or I'm having more trouble getting attention on the work that I do, it affects my sense of like whether I'm paying my dues to exist in the world, which is a very like white colonialist mindset problem, but it's still a problem because that's how I still think about it. And, And it's not like I think that we are all responsible to contribute to the world that we live in and, and recognize that even if we're not consciously contributing, we're still contributing, right? We're still impacting. And, and so I think about like with intensives, so you know my work with yeah. intensives and expansives and intensives are for your listeners who don't already know this, the folks who like go like hell and then rest like the dead and get really into things or not into things at all. And, and don't really want to do small talk. They just want to, we just want to di- dive right in. Right. <laughs> and, and we often get told that we're too much. We get told by culture, by society, and especially if we're assigned female at birth or acculturated as women, we we get told over and over and over again that this bigness is, this wildness, to tie it into your new project, um, is not acceptable, that we shouldn't be like that. And so it's kind of like being one of the older stepsisters in Cinderella. We're cutting off our toes and heels to fit into the glass slipper, the old version of Cinderella. Um, <laughs> And, and so how do we, how, one of the ways that I think we have to nourish our self-worth is by, um, by dispensing with all of that cultural stuff and asking who is, who is the person that I really am? What is really inside me? How do I personally function? when nobody else is telling me how to function, when nobody else is is influencing or factoring themselves into my life uninvited, um, what what is it like to be me? And then it is almost equally critical that we ask, what is it like to be me in a society? Because we are in, we are social animals. We're in a community of beings and it's not just humans. And so what is, what is my role? How do I, as genuinely me, how do I fit in? I feel like that construction was very like E.E. Cummings, right? Humans merely, human merely beings. How do we, how do we as human merely beings fit into the, into the whole world? And not by changing our shape, but by understanding the value and the importance of the shape that we are as part of the whole. That's so perfect. And I love it so much, Um, partially because this whole idea of aligning this program to the seasons and um, just 
the last year and a half for me has been, I've spent a lot of time outside and a lot of time in nature. And then I read Braiding Sweetgrass, which I know that you read. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently reading a book called Rooted and it's um, same, same ideas as Braiding Sweetgrass and how just removed we all are from natural cycles. And, you know, um, I was in my hometown a few months ago and it was June. So like people should look like they've been outside, in my opinion, like we should all have, <laughs> you know, like you, you get a certain look after you've been outside for a little bit. And they all looked like really, really pale and like they hadn't seen the sun in months. And I mean, it was, you know, just the, it was June. So it wasn't like it was March. It was like the beginning. Haven't right. been. Like you should have been outside by this point. And it just really made me think about, you know, like how we are our modern society, everything is just served to us and we don't have to really work for it. You know, we could stay inside 24 seven and never ever go outside and it would be fine. We would still get everything that we needed because we can get things delivered to us. And the pandemic is part of that problem is like, we got used to being inside all of the time, but it just, I wonder how it affects our self-worth, how distant we are from the world that we actually live in. And the fact that I think by being inside all of the time and not being out in nature, we are, we forget we're not the only thing here. We're not the only beings here. And it really, I, I think it's affecting us as a society. Like we are forgetting our place where we belong and how we are contributing. And I think that that is also detrimental to our self-worth. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting because I moved um, in December, I moved from the Bay Area to Oregon and um, the Bay Area, it's very easy to be outside most of the time. Yeah. Um, and in Oregon, the weather is not as conducive all the time. Like sometimes it's nice, but the summers in Portland have been really hot and the winters in Portland have been getting increasingly cold. And so the window of time when it's pleasant and easy to be outside has been shrinking. But part of that also is like, do you have the right gear? Yeah. Are you, are you adapted? I don't even want to say to discomfort because I feel like, I, so I feel like we've been taught and society continues to move toward this idea that we should be comfortable all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Discomfort. But I also feel like the more, narrow that we make the band of our comfort, the harder that is to hit as a target. So by being outside more often, more kinds of weather, it's not just about adjusting to being uncomfortable. It's what we understand to be discomfort versus just a different sensation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, neurodivergence, there are a whole bunch of other factors involved in that. Some people can be comfortable in the rain and some people find any water hitting their skin to be like torture. And so like, I'm, this is said completely without judgment, but I do think that for me, being able to go outside barefoot more here, we've been able to get a house, which we're very lucky to do um, in Berkeley. I had an apartment. And so being able to be outdoors barefoot more often, being able to be in relationship with plants that I have some custodial responsibility for, um, you know, looking at the lawn and being like, I wish my landlord didn't feel so strongly about having an absolutely pristinely suburbanly manicured lawn because it actually damages the grass to cut it when it's really hot and dry. And 
now that it's going to start growing, I want to let it grow lush. And she would be very upset. And so would the city, actually, there are some ordinances about how long your grass can be. And, and if it were my house, I would grow a meadow, right? Like I would, I would go research some native plants. I would go there like a million. (laughs) Portland loves to grow things because things love to grow here. And so there's all these nurseries and all these nurseries are specific in different ways about like, how can you create an ecosystem in your yard? And if it were my yard, I, my front yard would not be grass. It would be, there would be some kind of ecosystem situation going on out there. It would mostly not need a lot of tending because A, I'm not good at that. And B, if it needs a lot of tending, that means you're forcing it. And so bringing it back around, it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be forcing myself into a tended state either. I want to be tended in the sense of like Mara Glatzel's work around tending and neediness, but I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be tending in the sense of like cause forcing something to grow in an environment where it doesn't. That like just hit me like a ton of bricks, <laughs> like genuinely, because I, that is just like something I've been trying to formulate into words that I haven't been able to. And that's such a good correlation of like, so many of us are trying to force ourselves in places where we don't fit. And that really impacts your self-worth when you're with people who are not your people and you're trying so hard. Yeah. Or when the people around you want you to be, you know, like I was talking to someone recently who, um, who is disabled and mostly hasn't been able to work and also I was saying, listen, I think you'd be great at accounting. And they were like, sure, if I didn't have to fit into corporate culture, yeah, I would be great at accounting. I just need them to compensate me fairly and I need them to give me a stack of work and then go away and leave me alone because this person is autistic. <laughs> <laughs> That's right? how and, I like to work too. So. <laughs> right. And And so there's this sense that the other piece of this is that we're all supposed to be like dandelions that we're all supposed to be able to grow wherever we land, that if yeah. we grow, we land in a crack in the sidewalk in the gutter of the street in a tiny little pile of dirt that on an otherwise barren mountaintop that we should just be able to grow and grow robustly and be beautiful and strong and reproduce. And somebody recently said to me, you know what, but you're an orchid. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to be an orchid because (laughs) the value system that I have been raised with is that I should require the least and produce the most yeah, consistently. And so I don't want to be an orchid because somewhere in my head, there's something wrong with being an orchid. And so I, again, I end up with this sense of like my self-worth is, is damaged or, or injured by Mm -hmm. this idea that I'm supposed to be a dandelion and I'm not a dandelion. I'm not ever going to be a dandelion. I need, and this is true of a lot of intensives. We need our very specific stuff. I need exactly the right pen. I need exactly the right paper. I need exactly the right software. I need exactly the right office environment. If all of those things aren't together, I can't do my best work. Yeah. When I do my best work, it's pretty extraordinary. And a lot of people look at what I do and they're like, you grow on nothing. And I'm like, well, I'm an orchid. So (laughs) (laughs) my root system doesn't look like other people's root systems. Yeah. And then being an orchid 
you're it's beautiful and extraordinary like you said but it's so rare and people don't know how to handle it and they don't know how to take it and they say things then that um comparing you to a dandelion or you know me too comparing Mm -hmm. us to dandelions and then we feel less because we can't do what everybody else does but what we do is pretty fucking awesome so yeah wow that old thing was it einstein who said you know you can't judge a fish by its ability to climb the tree or something like that like yeah absolutely we aren't all supposed to do the same thing and that's where i think our self-worth is shored up by being in community but being in healthy community absolutely yeah absolutely because i can't it's hard for me to see my value if i'm an orchid trying to grow in the middle of, I don't know, a wheat field, right? Like that's just yeah. not a good orchid <laughs> environment. But if I'm in an, in a, in a space where we're an interlaced in- ecosystem and orchids are part of that interlaced ecosystem, I don't know enough about orchids, orchids to maintain the metaphor, but <laughs> if, if I'm part of this interlaced ecosystem, then I have a role to play. Yeah. I do things and those things are valuable and those things are valued by the other parts of the ecosystem that don't do that thing, that do other things. So as an orchid living in a dandelion world, how do you, (laughs) um, how do you, I don't want to say ignore because I don't, I think there is value in what other people have to say about us, but we just have to, you know, not personalize some things because when a, a group of dandelions says something about you that it's mostly because they are not, they don't understand you. So how do you like filter out what they're saying and understand like, and, and like, you know, hear them, but be like, I hear what you're saying, but that's not for me. And I'm not going to like internalize that and make myself less because you don't get me. Have you figured out a way to do that yet? Because I need so to you know. have hit at the heart of my work. <laughs> you have hit at the heart of my work, because because that's why the framework exists. So, mm-hmm. is it okay for me to talk about the work I do? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go right um, ahead. So, so I developed the intensive expansive framework as a way of talking about this. So, in our flower metaphor, expansives are basically dandelions, and intensives are basically orchids. Um, there's a little, it, it, the flower types don't quite fit, but it works. Of course. Yeah. And, and intensives go through the world. My book is called, you're not too much intensive lives in an expansive world, because that context is important, right? We go through the world being told over and over and over again, that we should be different from the way we are. We start out as little kids and we're really energetic and we're really excited about some stuff. And people are like, I don't know why you're excited about that. Or we're like sobbing our hearts out because the world is on fire. And people are like, you're four years old. You're too young to understand that. What do you mean you're bereft about the state of the climate? And we're like, but the world is dying because our brains are just designed to understand things on a large scale. And that means that we can be hurt on a large scale by large scale destruction. (laughs) That's just how that works. And, and so the thing that, that I hope to do with this, with this framework is not to say that intensives are better, although it's kind of exhausting to be constantly told that we're worse. Right. (laughs) But my goal isn't like from the beginning, I said, this is not about creating pejorative terms for expansives. This is not about saying that expansives are bad or that what we often perceive as boringness is wrong. Right. 
it's not wrong. We need it. It's not actually boring in the in the true sense of like having a problem with it. There's no negative connotation to it. It's just a different way of being and we need both. And understanding each other and understanding, like making each other predictable, making each other comprehensible is, yeah. the, is the goal of the work, right? So when we understand that an expansive needs advance notice to really be able to engage with a the change, they, they just, they cannot, they, they cannot take surprises. They don't like surprises. They don't like a lot of emotion. They don't like to feel too big. Like it just, that's not how they function. And so if we understand that about them, then when they say, oh, that's a lot, what they mean is that's a lot for an expensive. And as soon as we can contextualize it as them reflecting their experience from their container, it is no longer about us. Right. Meanwhile, we say, oh, my God, you're so boring. You're sticking them up. Why can't you just understand this and get moving where, you know, we could be, we could have been done with this if you didn't have to analyze all those numbers and stuff. Right. And obviously, ideally, we come to a place of compassion and understanding. And neither of us says that to each other anymore because we understand each other better. But in the meantime, if I am having a bad day and I slip and I say something like that to someone who's close to me, who's an expansive, hopefully they can be like, Oh my God, you're such an intensive. Oh my God. Like I love you, but oh, we are different people. Right. And we can just understand that we're different people with different needs. We're dandelion and orchid. I need to be spritzed with water like three times a day. And like, apparently you can water me by putting an ice cube in my pot and the dandelions like drought, longer taproot yeah exactly yeah that's exactly okay that makes a lot of sense and I feel like that's one of the places that I'm well I I posted this on TikTok yesterday and I think I posted it on Facebook I don't remember but a couple of days ago I saw a thing on Instagram which is funny because it's like all these different social media it's all sure. coming together to to now um but they were in the, the thing um the girl said um Somebody once said to me that I am intimidating and my mm -hmm. friend who was with me said to that person, are you, is she intimidating or are you intimidated? And that helped her reframe it. And it was very applicable to me because I get told that all the time and I don't understand why people find me intimidating. Same. And I, I like, I ask, do not feel like, intimidating. Why? <laughs> why am I intimidating you? Which makes it so much worse. Like they just like, they're like, ah, can't I can't answer the question. You're, you're intimidating me. And I'm like, but. But that really helped me reframe. And it, it's like intensive versus expansive. Like they are intimidated by my whatever. And regardless of what it is, that doesn't necessarily make me intimidating. It just means they specifically are intimidated by something that I said or did. And, but it has made me like, you know, like roll back and like lessen and be quiet when I have something to say, just because I'm afraid of intimidating people. And um, so I'm working through that, trying to realize like it's not, it's okay for me to be intimidating to somebody, but that doesn't mean that I have to be less me just because they are intimidated. So yeah. Right. That really and the thing that I tell my clients all the time is if, if you're, if you're in an interaction where you want to interact with somebody like that, right? Like you're big and loud and excited and woohoo and let's talk about this. And they're like, well, that's, that's a lot. Could you just, could you, could you <laughs> down a little, right? And 
And what do you what do you do? And my response is, you don't have to be quiet or just back off, like literally physically back off. Yeah. Put 50 feet between you and then you can be as loud as you want. They can still hear you because <laughs> you're being loud and they don't have to be like directly energetically or auditorily confront, like literally confronted because there's also nothing wrong with them feeling the way they feel. Right. I think it's absolutely. easy for us when we get into like, well, I'm not intimidating. You're just intimidated. I think it's easy for that to feel confrontational or yeah. critical or dismissive or, and I talk about this a lot, the relationship between um, working in personal relationships that aren't romantic and Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Relationship Apocalypse. And one of the things we don't ever want to see show up in a relationship is contempt or dismissiveness, right? right. And so we can, we can not have contempt for that like that's mm-hmm. just how they are. They're very delicate. You know, they're one of those, yeah. I don't know, like the touch me not plant, right? Like y- you breathe on it and it goes me. And so, so how do we coexist? And the answer is uh, we don't plant us in the exact same spot, right? We plant us at some distance, just like um, companion planting, right? Some plants go well together and some plants don't go well together. So you don't plant them in the same garden bed. You plant them at some distance. And that really gave me some perspective of, you know, I've been so annoyed by people calling me intimidating and I'm like, well, you're just intimidated. But then that we both are feeling a bit of contempt for each other and finding that middle ground is really important for everybody's self-worth, not just mine. Right. I love that. Very good. So when it comes to um, doing our work, and the things that oh, I asked this of somebody else, um, another person who did the, this chat with me, um, how do you, well, okay, let me rephrase. Uh, we, I think most intensives are very self-assured people. Like we're very, we know we're right. We know we're right. Yeah. And like, I have no doubt about what I'm doing in the world and whether it's the right thing suited for me. Like, I don't have those doubts. But then when it comes to putting my work out into the world, I feel that whole, is this worthy of like people paying attention to it? So like, I'm self-assured, but I also lack self-worth. And I don't think it's just me. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? I don't have a straight up answer, but I would love to have a conversation about it. My challenge with that is, is that our world conveys worth with the two currencies of our time, which are time literally and money Mm -hmm. or attention and money. And, um, and then we convey worth based on how much money you've accrued and how much attention you can get. True. Accurate. Yeah. Very. And so if I'm not making a bunch of money or if I'm not pulling a bunch of attention, like if I throw an event and like three people come, it's not that I don't think it's valuable to those three people. It's like, maybe the thing that I struggle with over and over again is maybe what I'm doing is just not needed in the world right now. Like maybe yeah. this is not a thing that our collective organism needs. And then I'm like, okay, but also just because people don't eat their 
broccoli or whatever. It doesn't mean they don't need the broccoli. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I don't think that what I'm offering is all that unpleasant. Right. But it may not be, it may not have the same appeal as a candy bar. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. I think for me, the the most useful thing is, is the literal counter to that, right? When somebody shows interest, when somebody shows engagement, when somebody asks questions, when somebody invites me to come and share what I'm doing, for me, that's like, that's very reassuring. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly reassuring. And I think one of the ways that we can collect, I don't know if we can individually counteract it, right? I don't know that the solution is individual. I think the solution may be collective and the collective solution is that we deliberately share our love and admiration for each other's work in the world because expansives, most expansives and some intensives don't have a, don't have a a mission, right? They don't have a calling and that's fine. And I think the coaching world often goes off in the wrong direction, being like, find your purpose and then go do it. It's like, they're like 15% of the people, maybe 30% of the people at most have a a purpose calling type thing. Everybody else is just like, they're happy to mow their lawn and take their kids to soccer or whatever. And that's a perfectly fulfilling life. And that is a valid life path. There is nothing again to disdain about that choice about that. It's not even a choice about that way of being. So then when those of us who have callings share our callings, others of us with callings who understand what it is to have the calling picked up and echoed and reinforced. And I'm having this image of like people standing on hilltops and like blowing horns and like other people picking it up and like passing it on. Right. If, if we don't do that for each other, like nobody else understands why it's so valuable to do that. Nobody else understands why that's so meaningful to us. So I think, I think the answer is collective. I love that answer. And I think that, I think this is something that needs to be like a group of, of us that like we go post and say, this is what I'm doing right now. Can you please share this for me? <laughs> Can you just please talk this up for me? Um, Cause I would love to do that for, you know, other people. I would love it. And I feel like, I, I know I post about my stuff and then um, I feel like, well, nobody else is saying anything about it. Nobody's, co- you know, saying anything, nobody's sharing it, whatever. Um, but you have an expectation of, well, I posted it so people should have seen it, but that isn't true. Like, I don't see everything you post and you don't see everything I post. And like, nope. you know, there's all kinds of things. So we need to make a place where people can go and say, Hey, I did this. Help me. I'm, I'll help you. You help me. I like this. This is something that needs to be created. It's not I don't even think it needs to be that. Like, I think that's about, a, I think that's a, a, a fine idea. And I don't think it needs to be that complicated. I think this is primarily relational. And this yeah. is where the parasocial versus social relationship part of social media has gotten so complicated because yeah. when we have a parasocial relationship with someone, we still expect that they see our stuff and that they, they'll interact with it if they like it and whatever. And, and yet I think that it's much more, I think that effective propagation is much more intimate. True. Very true. Yeah. And so it's like you and I get on this call, we get on maybe another call. When I, when we, when I got on to get the zoom link, I realized that we had had a call schedule that we hadn't been able to have. And so we, it's been a while. Um, And, and so we get on, 
call after call, not because it's drudgery, not because it's exhausting, but because we nourish each other just by being in relationship. And then it wouldn't take me like for, and I'm, I'm sort of targeting your particular current project because, you know, it wouldn't take me seeing your TikTok on Facebook this morning as I was getting up to be like, oh, you have a new project afoot. I literally had no idea until half an hour before we got on the phone. Yeah. And, and like, when I know intimately who you're looking for and why you're looking for them, because like, especially in my world, I need to know why it's a women's program. I can't just be like, oh, here's this women's program. Y'all should join it. I need to know how I can explain to people why it's important that it's just women. Yeah. Because if I can't explain that, I can't propagate it. Right. Right. Because my community is largely genderqueer. Right. And, you know, I'm, I am struggling with that because it, it's women because that's what I am and that's who I, you know, know. And I feel like my, especially here locally, it's where I see the most struggle is amongst women, especially in rural areas who don't know how to be anything but a wife and a mother. And I feel like there's so much potential here that is being wasted because it's just what we're raised to do and be. And we're, we could be so much more than just that. Not that there's anything wrong with being a mother and wife, because I've been both of those things, but that's where my focus initially is, but it's not the only focus. So and I'm struggling if, with kind of talking about that, actually. And if your program is really about breaking out of the mold of being a wife and mother, then anybody who was raised to be a wife and mother could benefit from your program. Right. Yeah. Including like trans men coming out in their 30s. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and so it's like if your program's about being a wife, not being a wife and mother only. Yeah. Then then that's, you know, I can talk about that in that context, but that's the thing where it's like, I mean, it comes back to self-worth, right? I, because of my life experience, I can't tell people that they don't belong just because of their gender. Right. No. Yeah. I understand that completely. And, 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 and so it's, it's like knowing what's going on with your program at a deeper level yeah. Is what makes it possible for me to suggest or recommend or say this is or this isn't for you. Um, and that's probably going to happen on a more individual level if it's yeah. not gender inclusive, right? If right. it's not like anybody raised, especially rarely to be a, a wife and a mother, come on in. Because what we're going to do is we're going to kind of analyze that training and then deconstruct it. Yeah. And I, that's really where this all started is that I... I actually saw another TikTok, which is hilarious, about um, a woman said something about raise your hand if you were raised to be a strong, um, independent woman, but also raised to fit into these gender stereotypes, which completely, it's like, you know, they don't go together. They do not go together. You cannot be a strong, independent woman and a traditional what everybody thinks of as a wife and mother. And so I think there's a whole generation of people struggling because of this weird, you know, I know specifically for me, it was my grandmothers and my mother, um, actually more my grandmothers than my mother, because my mother's pretty traditional, but my grandmothers were like, you need to learn how to take care of yourself. You need to learn to be able to do these things on your own. 
but we also want you to get married and do what, you know, your Christian upbringing has taught you to do and let your husband be the leader of the family and do all of these other things. And I'm like, it just leaves you so confused about what, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't be both things. I can't just, I can't submit and be a strong, independent woman. Like those are, those don't fit together for me. And so it, that's really where a lot of this started combined with all of the being separated from the natural world. And I'm still working out how to fit it all together if I'm honest, but you know, that's, I mean, that's real. It's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated and it doesn't, you know, I think that desire for women to be strong enough to pick up everything. And let's be honest, that desire is often even more complicated and heavy for people who are not white. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like the idea of a strong black woman is a whole other neighborhood of complication. Um, but, but this idea that, that women collectively should be able to hold up more than half the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And also should be so devoted to the well-being of others that part of that strength goes to sacrifice of self. It's, it's a, it's a complicated idea. And it, it, what's funny is that it, I don't think it started out as gendered. Like if I'm thinking about what you said about like a Christian upbringing specifically, and I'm thinking about like monks, right? Vowed religious from way back. They were expected men who were expected to vow their lives to the church and sacrifice their choices and their well-being in order to serve in the church. Um, But they also were able to expect a certain amount of basic support. Yeah. So that model of like, as long as you have a house and clothes and food, then the rest of you belongs to something else. Yeah. Goes back further than, further than its integration into patriarchy. True. Very true. Which is, which is even more fascinating to me. Like, I'm not saying that you're wrong about women right now, because I think you absolutely are right. But I'm also thinking about like, how many different ways that shows up just in Western, Western Christian cultural spaces. And so how do you, how do you do that? I think, and you know, then we look at what has happened to ministry as women have moved into clergy roles and how ministry is less respected than it used to be and less well-paid relative to other salaries than it used to be. And a lot of scholars think that that correlates with, the entry of women into ministry, this idea that ministers are less of an authority and more of a nurturing figure. And there's a lot of really interesting yeah. stuff to look at there. So then, cause <laughs> I'm sorry, you opened another rabbit hole here. Um, You're good. Keep going. But, you know, I think about how do we create nurturing spaces that don't require that level of sacrifice because right now the conversations I see, and especially in the transmasculine community, the conversations I see are often, okay, I have, I'm in a relationship. I have taken off this mantle of womanhood that never fit in the first place. And now 
you know, sometimes it goes smoothly, sometimes it goes swimmingly, but sometimes it's like, and now my partner is essentially mad that I'm not being the woman, quote unquote, anymore. And, and we don't know collectively together, we don't know what to do. Yeah. Because if neither of us is the woman, then who provides that kind of nurture in our household? How do we refigure it? And so then, you know, often they end up, we end up collectively looking again, collective, 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 because one of the things that Braiding Sweetgrass did was it sort of unplugged me from this individualistic perspective of things. And so like we end up having conversations about how do we, like, are we just neither of us suited to nurture? What if we're both orchids and nobody is the person with the spray bottle? Yeah. <laughs> and there's this sense of betrayal that people have to get over their own betrayal, other people's betrayal. Like you promised me you were going to be this. And they're like, no, I didn't. The world promised you I was going to be this. I never promised. I never promised that. And if I never promised that, but we both assumed I was going to do it. And now I'm awakening and I'm realizing that, A, we're going to have to figure out if we're still into each other, we still want to stay in this relationship. Now we're gay. (laughs) And so what does it mean? Like, and so we can look to gay, lesbian, you know, similar gender couples and family groups of various sorts to, to figure out like, how do we, how do we bring the things in that we don't have? Maybe you're a gay couple and you're perfectly complimentary and that's great. And one of you is like, Oh, thank God. Now I can, you know, make sure the house is beautiful and be the hostess with the mostest and it's going to be great. And maybe not, maybe neither one of you is that person to hyper oversimplify it. Like maybe you're both the fix it person and neither one of you is the baking and, you know, bed linens person. And And so how do we, again, collectively solve this problem? It doesn't have to come from inside the house. My last call, our conclusion was that you can't really maintain your self-worth without action. And I like this kind of conclusion that we need a collective of, you know, like-minded people to really maintain all of these things about ourselves and each other. Um, that we are all interconnected. And my favorite thing, I think, in Braiding Sweetgrass, and which I've heard in, you know, a million other places, there's a whole thing in Star Trek about it, but the, like, mycelial network that is mm-hmm. connecting all of us. And we all try to be individuals and stand out in our own way, which, you know, obviously we are individuals, but we are so connected. And without that connection, we are lost and empty. And we really have to be connected both to each other and to the world that we're in and part of. And yeah, this is great. I love talking to you. <laughs> love talking to you. Likewise. Likewise. So, I just, you. I love the idea of us being able to let go of the idea that any two person unit is supposed to have everything it needs. Yeah. And so, you know, if, If you or any one person, like the idea that we're individually supposed to be able to generate our solutions. Right. 
what kind of absurdity is that? Have you looked at the moss? I haven't read Rachel Robin Wall Kimmerer's book on moss yet, but it's on my list. I'm gonna have to get that one now. <laughs> <laughs> but like, have you have you looked at the moss? Have you looked at the trees? Have you put your hand in the dirt? Have you laid on the ground and just watched whatever? bugs your environment has if your environment doesn't have bugs are you concerned because you should be absolutely (laughs) and and like for us like how do we how do we open the doors because one of the things that's been hardest over the last 10 years or so as i've watched our world evolve is that we've stopped we've stopped sharing cups of sugar metaphorically Right. Like we don't, everything has to be paid. Everything has to be an exchange. And it's because we're all desperate. And the more desperate we become, the more kind of closed in we become. And there are lots of studies about that. But, but what if we just decided, I thought about this a few years ago and just decided to go for it. What if we just decided to share again? What if we decided to just offer stuff that's easy for us to do? Sometimes not for money. Even if we need money, sometimes not for money and, and to be really cooperative about how we exist because, because nobody has to, I think the idea that we should have self-worth that's independent from everything around us is absurd. Yeah, it really is. And so the question is, how do we bring each other into vulnerability and safety and intimacy enough together so that our coexistence without necessarily even explicit exchange all the time, but so that our coexistence makes it obvious why we are all important. If you sit down and say, okay, what did I do today that was important to someone? If I'm not living in enough of a community that I can answer that question, maybe not for a day because, you know, we are more isolated than we used to be, but it's over a week. If I can't answer that question, I need more connections to people, even if I'm an introverted intensive, which I am. Um, That's, I think, how we're going to, that's how we're going to normalize and engage and, and create a space where we can all believe more in ourselves and in each other. And then trust the safety net. We're all more willing to go without things if we know someone is going to catch us. So let's be the people that we're going to catch us. And then we can stop worrying quite so much. I love that. Thank you so much for having this chat with me today. It's wonderful. You're so welcome. So do you have anywhere specific that you'd like me to send people? Like your website, your, um, I know you have a new thing that you've been doing. Well, you, yeah, so, so I have a membership, which is at dev.intensivesinstitute.com slash membership, because I haven't officially launched that website yet, even though it's basically where all the new material is going. Um, I would love to have people join the membership of their intensives. Otherwise, they can, they can read my book, You're Not Too Much. They can listen to my podcast, Power Pivot, um, or they can work with me one-on-one. Or call me in to work with their teams or their programs. If you know that your program is full of intensives and they would benefit from understanding what it means to be an intensive and having some tools for that, then I'm a resource. I love it. I actually don't have your books. I'm going to go buy it right now. Um, And then, yeah, 
Thank you so much. And I'm going to call on you for the next topic because um, you're always fun to talk to and you always have such insightful things to say. So thank you for listening to the She Owns podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what She Owns is all about, head over to sheowns.org. Whether you're needing support around your business or your life, we've got you covered. Our all-in-one business suite gives you all the tools you need to run an online business. And She Owns Her Life is a year-long program aligned to the seasons to help us return to a natural rhythm, reclaim our wild power by rediscovering who we are, and relearn how to be our strong, independent selves in a world that wants us to conform. Head over to sheowns.org and learn more.